Well, turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel 7, passage we read earlier. 1 Samuel 7, verse 2 through 17 is what we're going to be looking at. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we wrapped up, we did two chapters. We did five and six, <clears throat> looking at uh, Israel's usage of the ark of God. In chapter four, we saw that in chapter four, chapters five and six, and what's happens, it's what happens to the, Phil the Philistines who steal the ark and are punished for it. Their God is humiliated and then they send it back to Israel um, at the end of chapter six. So now the ark in verse two is in a place called Kiriath-Jerim. It's not in Shiloh where it was before. And it's not in Jerusalem where it eventually will be because that has not been established yet. That doesn't come around until uh, Solomon's day. And when he's king, he rules and he establishes uh, the temple in Jerusalem where the ark will be permanently. So it's resting in this place and it's there for 20 years, 20 years. And what we're gonna see is in these few verses, these 15 verses or so, is Israel in a complete juxtaposition as to where they were if you go back to chapter four. We're gonna see a different Israel. They have a different leadership now. They have Samuel now instead of Eli and his wicked sons but they're going to have a different mindset towards God and towards the things of God, a more biblical view of that. And it starts in verse two with a lament. So they're there. Uh, the ark is there in Kiriath dream a long time, 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. So this lamenting, this is, this is a, uh, a sanctified mourning. This is a grieving. Now, they don't have any real physical reason to grieve or mourn or be full of lament. They're not being attacked right now. But what do they seem to understand? They seem to understand we are in such a pathetic position and we have the ark in this strange location because of our sin, because of God's rightful punishment towards us. So this is an actual spiritual awakening. They're understanding their sin. And that's where all spiritual awakenings or revivals, if you will, must begin. They must begin with the realization of your own sin. And that's what they're lamenting. They are in this posture of lamenting. They clearly perceive God's displeasure with them. And this lamentation is it's mourning, it's wailing, it's groaning. But it, the question we have to ask when you see this is, is it real or is it just reactionary? Because there is such a thing as worldly sorrow. There is such a thing as uh, ungodly lament. Look, it's a place like 2 Corinthians 7. Verses 9 and 10 says, I now rejoice, this is Paul speaking to this church, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. I rejoice, or I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. So Paul right there makes a clear distinction for us looking at Israel in the Old Testament as 
Is this godly sorrow or is this worldly sorrow? Godly sorrow always leads to repentance. There is a kind of sorrow that somebody can feel or express. There are tears that can be cried and wailing that can be expressed that isn't godly, that isn't genuine. And maybe we've had experience with that. I've had plenty of experience with that. People coming and talking to me in different ways, not even at just at church, just people find out that you're a pastor and there's this worldly sorrow, but it's not followed with repentance. People with, that, are, that are struggling with alcoholism or pornography or like rage issues, just things along those lines of just repetitive sin, there will be a version of sorrow, but it's not followed by any actual repentance. And they're right back in it. And they don't care. The consequence, as soon as the consequences are removed of whatever the sin was, then they don't care anymore. But is that Israel right here? Well, let's continue reading to see what we find out. Verse 3, Samuel speaks. Now, we haven't seen Samuel since chapter 4, verse 1. We've basically gone three whole chapters with no Samuel. Now he's back. And he's an adult. And he is the judge. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you are to return to Yahweh with all your heart, then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and set your hearts toward Yahweh and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served Yahweh alone. So you see this lamentation, this sorrow over what their sin has brought about for them. And Samuel tells them, if you really mean it, then here's what you'll do. You'll remove all the idolatry and the statues thereof and the practices thereof, and you'll worship God alone. That's what, that's what will be real. That's what real repentance is. And this is not, when we think about it, when Israel does something like this, uh, as you see the different cycles in the Old Testament, particularly in Judges and the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, and then throughout the Kings and Chronicles, what you see is this removing of idols. And we often think that's like, okay, everybody just take the, you know, your little golden monkey like from Indiana Jones and just go toss it in the creek and then you're done. But this is, a, this is a civilization, this is a societal overhaul. Because what you are doing, so when you see Ashtaroth, that's a female deity. When you see Baal, that's a male deity. Both of them are, uh, the worship for both of those false gods involves uh, uh, cult prostitution and orgies. That's mixed together with your worship. And so you kind of have the best of both worlds. We have this fertility cult where the gods are going to bless us. And we also, the worship is pretty fun. And we get to do that all the time. And so Samuel's saying, you're going to stop all that. And you're going to scrape the land. That's what real repentance is going to be. You're, you're going to do that. And you're going to serve Yahweh alone. He, Samuel just gives clear directions in verse three. We see it. If you are to return. If this is real, then you will do these things. You, this is true repentance from this lamenting. That's when it, I'll know that it's real or not. And Eli and his sons never did this. They either didn't do it, Eli, from cowardice or his sons from complicity. They, they loved doing all of that stuff. 
So they wanted to keep doing it, and Eli didn't have the spine to say anything about it. But biblical faithfulness, you can see just right here, biblical faithfulness isn't complicated, but it is costly. It's not complicated to be faithful to God's word, but it is costly. Nothing that Samuel said there is hard to understand. None of it is just a struggle like, oh man, how do I wrap my mind around doing this? This is gonna be, I have to sit down and really process and lay out a plan for me to be faithful to God. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It's just costly. I'm gonna have to give up everything that I love. That's what it is to follow Christ. Luke 9, 23, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you're gonna follow me, Jesus says, then you have to start with never following you. So the whole theology that exists in all Disney movies of follow your heart is antithetical to biblical Christianity. Step one is never follow your own heart. Deny yourself. And then what do you do? You take up your cross. Now, the cross gets so trivialized in 21st century, 20th century America, like you just put that everywhere. But imagine a cross around your neck or just put a guillotine in its place, put an electric chair in its place. That's what your leader went and did. And he's telling you to do the same thing. So you might as well just put a lethal injection needle on a necklace and hang it around your neck. This is an instrument of execution. Take up your cross, join the death march, the death of yourself. That's what you do to follow Christ. And you do that every day. That's what it means to follow Christ. So it's not complicated, but it is costly. And then he goes off to say, Jesus in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And see, that's where Eli and his sons had led the people to believe that you could exist in. And in, in 1 Samuel 1 through 6, you can exist in not carrying your cross and following Yahweh. You can have it both ways. But Jesus makes it clear right there, if you do not carry your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. Not you cannot be my elite forces. You can't be a special forces Christianity, a SEAL Team 6, a Green Beret Christianity. You'll be in the army, but you won't be elite. No, no, you won't even be numbered amongst them if you are unwilling to carry your own cross, to deny yourself. That's what Samuel's instructions were. They're basic. Samuel just basically said in verse three, stop breaking the first three commandments. Stop doing that. That's it. Start obeying the greatest commandment consistently. Start obeying the greatest. And what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Stop breaking the first three of the 10. Start obeying the greatest. That's what you have to do. That's clarity. That's simplicity. That's what marks all biblical preaching. Simple clarity beats clever profundity every time. Samuel doesn't say anything clever, anything new, anything that hasn't been said before. He's just is telling them what God says. And they follow Samuel's orders, which are really Yahweh's orders, thoroughly. They have an open confession of sin. They remove the bales and they uh, 
purge the idols from their land, and they have a heartfelt commitment to righteousness. And they gather to Samuel, in verse 5, at Mizpah, this area, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when you see judged here, I don't want you to think that all Samuel did was sit behind the bench and say, uh, that was a crime and you have to pay this amount. He's not judging crimes exclusively. This ju- the role of a judge is the role of of a, of a pastor, of a priest. He's instructing the people. He's making God's word known and clear. And when you have a theocracy, you have a culture where God is the supreme ruler, not a king or not a, uh, um, uh, a prime minister or president or things like that, you have a complete blending of church and state. So the law of God is the law of the land. So he is doing things like that, but he's also teaching and instructing the people. And they confess their sin and they receive Samuel's teaching. They take it and say, yeah, what makes the difference? What's the difference between Israel here in chapter seven versus Israel in chapter four? Why are they longing for Yahweh now? Like they weren't before. The difference is the only noticeable difference between chapter four and chapter seven is leadership. Chapter four, you have Eli and Hophni and Phinehas leading the people in just open debauchery and defilement of God or of God's people. And then in chapter seven, you have Samuel, who is the exact opposite. There's an essential component of clear, humble, godly leadership amongst the people of God. Now, notice that Samuel is not exerting entrepreneurial effort. He's not an innovator in any way. He's not a charismatic personality. He's not a visionary with a new plan to unroll and that will make us all better. He's just plain. He's just simple. And he has the confidence to repeat God's word after him. He's just saying what God has already said. That's it. That's the difference is you have leaders now in Israel who are willing to say what God has already said. That's it. No entrepreneurism, no visionary leadership, no revolutionary thinking, no new ideas, no big, lavish, charismatic personalities. Just somebody who's willing to stand up and say what God has already said. That's the difference amongst the people, plain and simple. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people are out of control. Now, vision, that gets co-opted by people saying, we need visionary leaders. And that word vision actually just means revelation, meaning revealed word, meaning what this is. Where there is no revealed word of God, the people are out of control. And that was happening in chapter four. There was a complete disregard. Remember what did it say? That there were no visions. Yahweh was not giving visions. There was no word from God and the lamp had almost gone out. That was how they were described before. And now the exact opposite. Samuel is just saying what God has already said. He's just a man who will speak God's word to God's people. Not a revolutionary, just a reformer. Not an innovator, just an imitator. An imitator of God. That's it. That's the difference. Now, they're repentance is going to be put to the test. Will they bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Look at verse seven. Then the Philistines heard 
that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. And the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Then the sons of Israel heard it and were afraid of the Philistines. You have your decision point now. We Philistines are coming. They've gathered together. They've assembled the forces. And are you really a changed person, a changed people, or are you going to go right back into sinfulness, idolatry? Are you going to say, well, never mind. We're going to just do what you guys want to do. Are you going to say, gosh, as soon as we follow God, now all this pain comes, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. What was the point? We were having fun before, at least. They have a first test of genuineness. You see, it's like a sponge. When a sponge is squeezed, you find out what was actually inside of it, right? You see the color. You can taste the liquid, what kind it is. You can see if there's anything in there at all. When a sponge is squeezed, you know what's in it. When a people are squeezed, you find out what was in them the whole time. Regardless of what was advertised to be inside, all will know what the true internal contents were when the squeeze comes and the squeeze is coming. So here's what they do. Look at verse 8. So the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. That's exceedingly different than chapter 4, verse 3, isn't it? Just look at that real quick. Then the people of God, then the people came into the camp and the elders of Israel said, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the, of the covenant of Yahweh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They're like, oh no, the Philistines are here. Oh no, let's get the trinket. Let's get the tchotchke and bring it out. But what do they say this time? They go to Samuel. They fall down on the ground and say, please don't stop praying for us. Please keep pleading with God for us. We have no hope unless God acts. We have nothing if it's not for him. Their first instinct and their only hope is Yahweh. It seems to be that this is fruit indeed in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3 verse 8. John the Baptist says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If repentance is real, it will be visible. We will see it. You'll be able to tell. A true turning is made known by actions and not by words. And here's the thing. We wholeheartedly accept that truth everywhere but the church. We accept that everywhere. When it comes to friendships, relationships, your car mechanic, you, you mean the, the coupon you're trying to get honored at the grocery store, your words don't mean anything unless your actions back them up. I don't care what you say. What are you going to do? We insist on that everywhere. Our kids going to school, going to work, our boss talking to us. But for some reason in the church, we go, ah, your actions don't have to line up with your words. But that's what true repentance really is. And that's what we're seeing happen actually now by God's grace amongst Israel. Let's see what they do. They, cry, they ask for, to be, for, God, for Samuel to intercede for them. And Samuel does. Verse 9. He took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel. And Yahweh answered him. See, what we often don't think about is we don't think about the leader also being a part of the people. He's also under the threat of the Philistines coming and killing them. So he's crying out. He's in this desperation. He's coming to God alone, not like Hophni and Phinehas who were like, yeah, let's just parade out the Ark of the Covenant. That sucker's covered in gold. God won't let it get stolen. Let's go do it. Samuel is crying out to God. 
And what happens? Verse, in verse 9, and Yahweh answered him. Yahweh answered him. How did he answer him? Look at verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were defeated before Israel. Samuel, was he in the, what does verse 10 say? Was while he was offering up the burnt offering, he's in the middle of right worship of God as the enemy's coming and God just thunders. We're not given anything more than that. Just big loud noise and the Philistines are killing themselves. They're defeated by themselves. Completely opposite reaction or situation of chapter four where Israel musters their strength and they rattle their sabers and they march out towards the people with false theology and with errant thinking and sinful hearts. Here, they're engrossed in worship. The enemy's bearing down on them and then God just thunders and they all die and go away. That's the difference. The Philistines are just thumped by God easily. So verse 11, so the men of Israel went out of Mizpah after God thunders and then the Philistines that are left, they chased them down as far as below Beth Car. Struck them all. The Philistines are just thumped. Instead of 30,000 being killed, Israelites, that is, in chapter 4, you have a complete reversal of that. And they didn't try to obligate God by their actions. They just pleaded upon his mercy. That's what we do. We don't try to obligate God to work for us, to do things for us. We just plead upon his mercy and engage in faithfulness of what he's told us to do. So you have Israel and the nation of Philistia in this weird contrast. Because you, if we don't make a point to stop and consider, didn't the Philistines just have the Ark of the Covenant? Didn't they in chapters five and six go through this strange humiliation to where their God, Dagon, the statue, was on the ground, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Then they stand him back up, and the next day, his head's off and his hands are cut off before the Ark. Didn't they see that? Didn't they just have the experience of getting two cows that have that just had calves and have never been under the yoke of an oxen, put the yoke on them and the Ark on the, the cart, and instead of those cows freezing like a cow would do that's never been under a yoke or running back to their calves like a newborn, like a, like a new mother cow would naturally do. It goes the opposite way all the way to Israel. And they know, okay, yeah, that's now that Yahweh was the one doing that to us. They learned nothing from that interaction. As soon as they hear something happening at Mizpah, they're like, let's rally the troops and go get them. Didn't you just do this? Sin makes you stupid. But repentance gives you wisdom because the Israelites don't act like they did at all in chapter 4. Look at some of the contrasts here. In, in chapter 4, verse 10, it says that the Philistines defeated Israel. It uses that word, defeated, or struck down, your translation might say. But in chapter 7, verse 10, it has Israel struck down or defeated the Philistines. Then there's also an example of what true faith is. In chapter four, verse three, Israel attempts to manipulate God. The Philistines hear it and they're scared. The Philistines are scared. 
Then you have the opposite in chapter 7. Instead of trying to manipulate God, in chapter 7, verse 8, they truly repent. The Philistines hear it, and the Philistines aren't scared and come and attack. Now the Israelites are scared. And then what are the results? You remember the end of chapter 7 when uh, the news comes back to Shiloh? 